Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Feminist Mormon Housewives podcast, Year of Polygamy series. I'm your host, Lindsay. And as promised, we are bringing episode six for a year of polygamy a year later. Now, I know I talked about bringing on Don Bradley to talk about Fanny Alger, and we're still planning on that. It's just we're having some trouble nailing down um, a date to schedule the podcast. So I've brought you something way, way better than I could have ever hoped for. And uh, it's someone who you probably know a lot about now, Carolyn Pearson, who has been very supportive and active in helping me on this sort of polygamy journey. But I don't think I've had you on the podcast yet. Carolyn, can you say hello? Mm, Hi, Lindsay. So great to be with you and uh, all the good folks listening. Yeah, so we... We have been in contact since the early days of the Year of Polygamy podcast. We've been working on stuff. But whenever I tried to get you to talk about it, you were pretty busy working on something. Do you want to talk about that? (laughs) Well, for about three years now, I have been really single-minded about creating, researching, writing this new book of mine that is now out, has been out for a couple of months now, The the Ghost of Eternal Polygamy, uh, subtitle Haunting the Hearts of Mormon Women and Men. So uh, rather than doing anything else that would take me away from that, or, or rather than talking about the subject prematurely, I really wanted to wait until I had my, my book out. Yeah, you've been working really hard at this, and uh, it's been something that I've been able to be lucky enough to see behind the scenes. But uh, talk to me about why this book, why why were you interested in polygamy? Well, that ghost that I mentioned really haunted me for a very, very long time. When I truly believed that uh, polygamy was God's will for Mormon women. And as I grew up, I was truly the best little Mormon girl you were going to find. And in the book, I talk about how our seminary teacher, wonderful man, bore us his testimony that um, this is the way that God's eternity is established. And even though it may sound uh, unappealing to us girls, especially that as we get more and more uh, selfless, and more righteous, we will understand the beauty of it and yearn to live it. And that was a tremendously um, explosive thing in my very fragile, budding heart and mind and, and spiritual growth. And that added to just a general observation that somehow men are central and women are peripheral. And by golly, polygamy certainly proves that. Um, I spent years with a lot of tears and, and study and, and prayer to figure out God's place for women. You know, just to say that phrase is embarrassing, as if God has a place for women. The female of everything, divine and mortal, are as central as maleness will ever be. And so that when I was able to grasp that paradigm shift, to make that paradigm shift, then I, I gave up all of the distress about it for myself, but I, I kept seeing it all around me. And then, as I mentioned in the book, when a, a cousin of mine 
told me that she uh, was anticipating seeing her departed husband in heaven, but that she wondered if he maybe had taken a second wife already. That was only about three years ago, and that really set me on fire because that truly felt to me like spiritual abuse, and it was not okay with me. And so I decided that um, that I was maybe the one who was in a position to do something, to bring all of this uh, to light so that we could really focus on not only See, we have so much uh, history about all this, but to know what it does to women today and to men today, that's what my commitment was. And so, of course, as, as you know, or anybody who knows anything about the book, I, I uh, sponsored a personal survey asking former Mormons and current Mormons, women, men, their opinions and feelings about um, the idea of eternal polygamy that we know still persists strongly and the inequality in the seating practices. And um, day one, we had over 2,400 people take that survey. And then after four weeks, we turned it down. We'd had, when we closed it, we had um, over 8,000 people take the survey, answering the questions. But the most important thing that I got from that was at the end of the survey, I asked for Stories. These would all, of course, be anonymous, uh, personal stories to, to express the experiences and the, the feelings that the, the respondents had to the whole idea of eternal polygamy. And whoa, I just sat right here on this chair at this desk and this computer looking at the stories that came in and the pain that was expressed over and over and over again. And so at that time, I knew it had to be a book. I wasn't sure until then if I would have, have, would have the, the, the information, but I knew that I did. And I knew that those people were counting on me to bring their stories out. And so I did. So you did, but I, I don't know if people know the sort of personal toll this took on you. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? What it was like sifting through these stories and talking to or reading about this, you know, for so long? Um, yes. And, you know, maybe surprisingly, Lindsay, I don't know that I would say it took a toll on me. It certainly took um, attention. It took time. And it took emotional involvement. But as I was working on this project, I was receiving so much in terms of possibility, in terms of excitement, in terms of gratitude, that I had all this information. That, uh, yes, the stories as I read them would just break my heart. But that's not where it ended. Where it ended was my knowledge that I was taking these stories and bringing them out of the darkness and putting them in the light. So I, I had a really good personal experience writing this book. I loved writing this book. Often I would just sit here with my fingers on the keyboard and just stop typing and say, Oh, dear God, thank you. Thank you that I get to write this book. So uh, that's how I experienced it, Lindsay. 
Interesting. Okay, well, um, Gina and I are going to be doing a two-part series with this. So if you are listening to this episode, I want to point you to A Thoughtful Faith. They're going to do part two of this interview. And of course, Carolyn has been doing interviews on several podcasts. So we don't want to cover what they have talked about in other podcasts, which uh, can we point you to those episodes you've done, Mormon Matters Mm -hmm. and Rational Faith? No, I I have not done that. I did uh, Christy Money's and I I did Natasha Hilfer Parker. Okay, so Mormon. <laughs> so you did Mormon mental health and the Mormon Transitions podcast. Yes. Oh, I had a great um, radio thing with the Doug Fabrizio. Oh yeah, and I'll link to that as well. If you haven't listened to Carolyn's interview with Doug Fabrizio, it's really interesting, especially because of the people who called in. There were some people that were sort of resistant to your ideas. Uh, well, yes, sure. And I knew from the get-go that there would be a lot of people resistant to these ideas. I I, I was totally expecting that. Uh, but as long as we brought that up, I have to tell you, I am, I am surprised and very, very pleased. I have not had significant pushback on this. I've been receiving tremendous gratitude from a lot of women and men who've read the book and tell me how it's helping their marriages already and lifting a huge burden from them. And I have to say, I too have heard these stories about your book. In fact, I've, you know, I'm talking about this subject now all the time. And so wherever I go, people are bringing up this book and how, like you said, it's changed their marriage women will have their spouses read it and say, wow, it never really set into me how much of an impact this issue would have on you. And as my wife, I want you to know that I will never, I'm going to make a promise to you that I will never be sealed to someone else. And I don't know that anything has really given people that permission to claim that in this sort of way before. I know that. And it's really remarkable because, of course, I have no authority. I'm just this woman without any standing, really any authority, um, expressing my own personal thoughts and sharing stories. But all of that put together seems to be so persuasive that a lot of people are just willing to say, boy, this makes so much sense to me. I can never go back to believing that God was behind all this and that I have the, um, the need ever again to hold a thought. What if my husband in the next life is asked to take other wives? Because that, that thought is gone now for so many women. Seeing the history, seeing the way I positioned everything. Um, and I'm so grateful that I have been able to participate in, in relieving a lot of sadness and, and strain. For people, and I hope that that will continue because it's word of mouth. And I, I hope that, that for the next many years, people will be sharing this book. And Lindsay, it's great to be with you and to have Gina uh, participate in the other half of this. Two women that I respect so much and love so dearly. So again, Lindsay, I want to thank you for, for your huge work in your year of polygamy. And I don't know if we want to have, have time to get into it, but there's a, a chapter in my book where I, I indicate exactly 
how profoundly one of your podcasts affected my own understanding of my own history. We could take time for that, or we could just let leave that as a little a little teaser for people to uh, to come to. Oh, well, let, let me just say that <laughs> now that I've said that, but maybe we won't. Let me just say quickly this much: uh, my great grandmother. Uh, Mary Cooper Oakey in uh, Paris, Idaho, left her husband on the day that he brought home a second wife. And the, the, the stories that we could gather were, were never uh, satisfying in that why? How did that happen then? Uh, they were later in life. And the children were pretty much grown. And why was it now that he decided, after he had resisted the pressure, to go ahead and do that? And and I was listening to one of Lindsay's podcasts, and she's talking about the pressure that Brigham brought on on people in uh, that particular time. And and I, I heard her say, and uh, Brigham Young and in. Um, 1873, up in Paris, Idaho, gave a sermon saying that if a man did not take a second wife because he only wanted one wife, when he got to heaven, he would find he had no wife at all. And I, I was just stunned. I thought, did I even hear that word? And I listened again, and and that's that's what it was. And uh, my brother was able to look up. You know, all of Brigham's words are memorialized in in the discourses now and my brother found that easily and it's just shameful just shameful that that kind of discourse has has such power in the history of our church and and I'm certain was the impetus for my great-grandfather um finally taking that second wife probably knowing that his wife was going to leave. I'm sure this was not the first conversation. Anyway, I just wanted to thank Lindsay again publicly for for that particular contribution because that has been profoundly helpful to me in my own history. Well, and and likewise, I want to thank you because when I was sort of discovering all this stuff, it was Carolyn who I would often call and process this with and talk to. It just felt like I had another sister walking with me through this. And oh, well, Lindsay, thank you. It was uh, just so great to be able to, to watch you doing the journey and take some steps with you. So if you haven't bought the book yet, I would say it's it's essential reading to understanding this series and understanding Mormon polygamy, because I think what you did is different than the work that I did. I did, of course, you lay out the history in such a concise, easy way, but... What you've also done is really focused on the effects that plural marriage has on Latter-day Saint women. And while we talk about that, and while many of us live this, you've talked about that. And it's, it's something that I think, and I've researched a lot of, a lot of things on this issue, and there's nothing quite like it out there. So if you don't have the book, get the book. I'm going to link to it. What I want to get into though is I want to talk about something, uh, interesting that you bring up in the book that I cover on my podcast, but I don't think I cover it enough for people to be satisfied. And that is the current sealing practices in the LDS church. Now, I, I'm going to link to an article I wrote for Pathios. I've been blogging for them about fundamentalism now, and I'll link to that. But uh, 
I have sort of a short history of the sealing practice on there. And we know that um, as late as 1838, Joseph Smith is still thinking of terms, marriage in the terms of till death do you part. We have letters that he's written to Emma and things that he has written or said where it suggests that if he worries that if he dies, their marriage will be over and he hopes to find her in the eternities. From 1838 up until his death, it's just a short period of time, but Joseph starts to adopt and play with the endowment, which will lead to the sealing practice. So the endowment is established in Nauvoo in um, the early 1840s, 1842. And then we have um, the, the next thing that gets instituted is celestial marriage, sealings, and the second anointing. And celestial sealings are when we start to see sort of these ties being brought together. Now, some historians will argue that plural sealings don't happen until the Utah period, but we do know that the sealings start there. But, of course, as polygamy really takes its course in frontier Utah and people are dealing with very complicated, large family systems, the sealing practice sort of changes over time. And even though the LDS Church abandoned polygamy officially in 1890, we know that it was really messy. And we still have remnants of those sealing practices. So, Carolyn, I'm hoping today you can talk to us about how the sealing practices affect modern LDS women now and give us some stories. Sure. Uh, Now, before we go on, one thing. uh, Joseph Smith had, well, all of his wives that are are accounted for in the books those were sealed to him were they not they they were um there is just uh one for example there's a dialogue article written by a scholar um look at his name he uh john david john berger who who claims that he wasn't sure if they were actually sealed in Nauvoo. Now we do know um, from journals and diaries that they were sealed. Joseph considered them sealed, but uh, some of these were done before the endowment practice was established. So we don't know if they were sealed in the actual endowment or the sealing ceremony. Some of them were sealed, of course, before the the Nauvoo temple even existed. Jo- yeah. Joseph was marrying women, sealing himself to them. But the, the I'm okay. talking about the actual practice in the temple. If that makes sense. Okay. Well, the word sealing is is a very lovely word in Mormon discourse in terms of something that is offered to ensure that you and your husband or your wife and your children and generations can all be uh, united in a very firm bond called sealing by the authority of the priesthood which bond will last for eternity. And that without that particular bond, under the authority of the priesthood, uh, all marriages will be dissolved and family relationships will not be assured over there. So that's really one of the major selling points that the LDS Church has had for for quite some time, that uh, through... What we have to offer, we can assure you that if you are sufficiently righteous, that um, that this ceiling that is now placed upon your relationship will will hold 
for time and for all eternity. And uh, that's a very attractive thing for many, many people. And as, as you read the stories in my book, you will find that, that yes, and especially the women uh, want this. You know, when you're in love, when you have found someone that you really believe you can create a happy life with, of course you love the idea of that life extending forever. And so it's with great enthusiasm that, uh, that most women enter into the idea of being sealed. Now, I was sealed. In fact, um, <laughs> just over two weeks ago, I celebrated alone my golden wedding anniversary. Gerald Pearson and I were sealed uh, 50 years ago on September the 9th. Uh, in the temple with Mary D. Hanks officiating and it was, it was lovely. I was, I was thrilled. Um, so yes, the, the general idea of sealing is tremendously attractive. And then the plot thickens and we start to realize some of the complexities that happen there. And women, Many of them bring into their marriage, even though they're deeply in love with uh, the, the husband-to-be, even though they, they have a firm belief in the church and the gospel, they, they nevertheless very often bring some real trepidations because they have been taught and they know that polygamy is not a dead issue. They know that if they die before their husband does, especially if they die young, that their husband will almost certainly marry a second time in the temple and be sealed to a second wife, meaning that first wife will forever be living in a polygamous situation in the next world. And many, many of the stories that I received reflected that Fear, uh, even before anything ha happened that might uh, bring about that kind of complexity, but just the understanding that that it's very likely that if I die, that will be my my eternal fate. That is enough to to make a lot of women after the marriage. Uh, somehow hold back part of their heart. And and those are the phrases that a lot of the women use in these stories. I, I, I find myself holding back a part of my heart in our most intimate moments because something in me knows that it's possible that in the next life my husband will be asked to or somehow find himself in a relationship just like this just like the one we're having right now with this great joy and this emotional, physical delight. This is going to be available to my husband in eternity with another, maybe another and another and another woman. And for the true believers, that can just be devastating. And I've had a number of the people who wrote in say that 
after somehow they came to terms with that saying, I simply don't believe that I am throwing that away now, that their marriages were much stronger. Now, that's a harsh thing to have to report, but that's what I heard from from a number of couples. I do want to highlight uh, when you're saying that it triggered a memory for me of of this podcast. And I, I actually bring this up in earlier episodes, which is where Eliza R. Snow and Emmeline Wells are giving advice on how to live plural marriage successfully. And I forget which one says it, but they basically say exactly what you said women are doing on earth, even though they're not living plural marriage, just the fear of it is telling them to guard their hearts. And I think, I think it was Emmeline Wells who says, if you want to do this successfully, you have to cut off that part of yourself. Yes. Yes. Back then that was the case. And today it's the case. And, and that is a shame. Because, Lindsay, as you know, one of the themes that goes through my book over and over again is we are better than this. We are a better people than to feel comfortable with women having this kind of pain and men having a a different but similar kind of pain. Once we get into, I mean, just the idea that, that your husband is going to share this kind of intimacy with another woman that's, that's a frightening prospect, but, but that alone is just kind of straightforward. There are a lot of really sticky, tricky complications around the whole idea of sealing and in that, that, uh, yes, uh, oh, well, of course, let, let's acknowledge, first of all, that, that, a a woman, whose husband dies and they have been sealed, she is left in a very, very difficult place. And a lot of these, the widow who has lost her husband, her sealed husband, finds herself in a very difficult place. She um, is, is taught that he's there waiting for her, but she wants to have perhaps another marriage here. Perhaps she only had one child. Perhaps she didn't have any children. But she now is, in a lot of ways, a very undesirable dating material for a, a good Mormon man because he wants somebody who right off the bat is clearly available to him. And, and we can understand this. He doesn't want to invest his whole heart uh, with a woman that he knows he will have to give up and that the children that he has with her, he will have to give them up as well to the sealed uh, authority of that first husband. So this part of the sealing creates a very difficult thing. And yes, it is possible that a woman uh, who has been sealed before can petition to have that sealing canceled. But that brings up a host of other real awful challenges to, it feels like divorcing that man as, as well as having him died, having him uh, die. And, um, and often it's not even permitted. I've, I've read stories of women who have petitioned over and over again 
to have a, a ceiling canceled uh, it, it, independently and also because they're now married to somebody else. And sometimes it just it seems to be arbitrary. Sometimes it does not happen for a lot of women. And when it does, it brings its own set of problems. One of the stories that just really haunted me was a woman. Um, well, here I I have the, the page open. Let me just read this one thing. When I finally made the very difficult decision with the blessing of my adult children to cancel the sealing to my late first husband so I could be sealed to my second husband, whom I also dearly love, I had to pay a very, very high price. It has cost me a 40-year happy relationship with my first husband's family. They literally disowned me. If we have a family baptism or baby blessing, they will come to the church, but they won't come to the lunch, dinner, after if I will be there. They took my name off all the family lists. Many of them do not even speak to me anymore. It should not have to be this way. My deepest wish is that these policies might change, that someday other women will not have to bear the burden of choosing between two righteous men one who has passed on and one who shares the journey here. Men do not have to choose. Only women do. I do not believe God works this way. So that's the experience that a, that a lot of women have, if indeed they do um, make that move to, to cancel the ceiling. And then, of course, what about... The children that they had, that is, is, that ceiling is gone. And supposedly the, the, uh, the husband, the, the first husband that is deceased now, uh, he now is left without being sealed to anybody and possibly, arguably, uh, destined only to be a ministering angel in heaven. Though, and of course the answer always seems to be by those who don't really care to look at the pain. Well, God will work all this out. Let's just don't even worry about it. But the pain that exists right now demands that we do look at it. Yeah, yeah. I think that that's sort of the covenant that we take, right? When we um, we we do it every Sunday when we promise to take on the name of Christ, and we also promise to sort of build the kingdom together to bear one another's burdens. And this is a a burden. And I think for a long time, the way that we've dealt with this pain is to tell women to basically suck it up, you know, or to figure out a way to not think about it or forget about it and that their pain will be rewarded somehow. Do you, let's talk about the idea of rewarding women's pain and their sacrifice as a, as a spiritual virtue. Oh, yeah, that's harsh, isn't it? Wow. Well, that might go back to how, however many centuries we might want to take it. Uh, women have generally been asked to make a lot of sacrifices. Now, the history of men is so great either. You know, men have, have experienced terrible things in the history of this world. But it seems to be that there's just an extra burden, an extra layer of sacrifice that's involved for women that isn't necessarily uh, there automatically for men. 
and so yes the the women in in Mormon history who were uh, invited into plural marriage which really meant that they were drafted in if they wanted place in the highest level of the celestial kingdom. This door was the only door that was open to them if truly they wanted to be obedient and wanted the highest reward. Understanding that it would be a sacrifice. And, you know, some of Joseph's wives, as they wrote later on, talked about feeling like they were a, a, a sacrificial lamb on the altar. But doing it for the benefit of their family, because the whole family was promised salvation if they agreed to be sealed to Joseph for eternity. So, and you know, as we listen to the read the discourses in Utah and Brigham shaming the women for being whiners, for being so weak as to not be enthusiastic about living polygamy. Women really didn't have much choice but truly to suck it up, to sacrifice her own tender feelings toward the one husband that she had chosen. Having to rewrite the script entirely with her, her own heart being taken out of the story. All that was required of her was to be obedient and to be kind to the new wives and and never mind that her own personal heart had been broken. So sacrifice is is something that has been drilled into us. Of course it is. Do you think that there's this idea that is inherently tied to sealing about sacrifice on the backs of women that we will never get away from? I I want, I think I know the answer to this because of your book, but do you want to talk about how you see God really instituting these sealing practices rather than how we kind of see them right now? Well, I, I have to respond first that I don't see God instituting sealing practices the way that they are now, certainly, in terms of, of being um, available so that polygamy is is very clearly an option. I I don't uh, I I have ceased to believe that that idea comes from God. So, so what do we do with all of the people that are already sealed to multiple people or who have had this hurt? What do you think can be done about that issue? I think it would be possible to just sort of lift the weight of that and acknowledge that we don't know very much at all about how everything is going to be organized over there. We really don't. And I suggest in, in the book, in a couple of places, that love is the substance that seals people. And I know of couples who are sealed together that hate each other. And of course, everybody would probably agree that, well, they're not going to have to be together anyway because God won't allow people to hate each other and have to stick together over there. 
but I just think we need to take much deeper breaths about all of this and to trust God, our Father and Mother in heaven, that the plan that they have for the whole family is that somehow or other, that we can't take exactly how we draw families on this earth, on our little genealogy sheets, and just lift them over there and say, see, this is how it's going to be. I don't know that we know that. But I am sufficiently trustful of God, our mother and father, that they have a plan for every relationship that has ever existed to be fulfilled over there in the most appropriate way that we have not even begun to, to understand. And that, that everyone that I have loved, friends, women, men, and at the end of the, the, the book, I, I say that my husband, Gerald, and I are still sealed. But I add, Mormon authority is the least of it. He and I are sealed as friends by the matter of love and grief and loss and learning, that eternal learning that moves us ever toward God. I would just like us to, to lift up the, the, the firmly drawn prescriptions of how things are going to look over there. And say to every couple who is together now, this blessed union is, is truly blessed. And, and it, the word sealed would be a fine word if we want to, to, to use it in this way. Sealed to be an eternal relationship dependent only on your love for each other and the will of the Lord. I like that because I feel like it frames things in a way that allows not only for a spectrum of relationship complications and flexibilities that I would say are inherent in Mormon families already, but it also allows a way for people to, for the ceiling purposes to be more individual and personal between you and God. Yes. Yes, indeed. So, so we've talked about it a little bit. You told us some of the stories. Uh, you told us one of the stories of someone who had someone who had been sort of hurt by the sealing practices. Um, and of course, your story tells many of these. Your book tells many of these stories. But I'm wondering if you can talk about how you you provide some solutions in your book about what to do with the sealing practices. Um, and I want you to sort of talk about some of your solutions here. Sure. I think uh, the obvious solution to this immediate problem of women being at such disadvantage that, that a woman who has been sealed to a man who is now dead or perhaps are divorced, that she is able to meet on equal ground a man that she has now determined she would like to marry, that regardless of any past sealing of either one of them, they are allowed to be sealed together 
with the Lord to just kindly and intelligently work out how all is going to look in the next life. And um, I, I document in the book how President, President McKay gave authority to uh, Hubie Brown to marry a number of uh, living women to a second husband, even though they were sealed to a man who was now departed, uh, saying, we'll just let the Lord work all this out because the, the entanglements here and now are so so difficult. We can't work it out here. So let's just go ahead and perform the sealing and let them work it out in the next life. Now, every once in a while, I hear of an isolated story. And I heard one not long ago from um, a leader that, that I know who said that um, that he had been given permission to seal a sealed widow to an, her husband without having to even think about having that first sealing task. That is, and there are isolated circumstances that I think uh, that still might, well, I know that it still happens that way. So to just extend that kind of grace seems to me so obviously the answer just to let men and women come together on equal ground in the temple, regardless of anybody's prior ceilings, and put all of this in the hands of God. How would you suggest that people listening to this who have felt pain on this issue or do feel troubled by it could move towards that goal? Because I think a lot of people would agree with you on that, but really... Are we waiting for general authorities to change the policy? What is it that that we need to have happen before before this change occurs? Or is this a matter of people just sort of reclaiming their own power? Because as you talk about in the book, which I think is important, even if people leave the church and they no longer even have faith in this practice, the ceilings um, and the complicated situations still maintain a lot of weight and hurt for people. That's true. Uh, and interesting, as you said, Lindsay, even a people who have ceased to believe in Mormon authority, Mormon doctrine, uh, still, if they are on the books of the Mormon church sealed to somebody, that still is a poll for them, a negative poll that they don't like. Uh, but I think what you said a moment ago is a major key. And yes, firstly, I will say that I do have high hopes, and I believe that it will and must happen that men and women, hopefully soon, are allowed to come into the temples for a marriage and stand on equal ground. And then above and beyond that, and until that happens, I guess it's just up to individual women and men to find their own personal authority within and between them as a couple and say, this thing that has been a division between us, 
this pain that I have been experiencing, I am going to, and maybe they can do just make up their own little personal ritual that exorcises the ghost of eternal polygamy and say, from this moment, we have enough confidence in God, our Father and Mother in Heaven, that we are going to conduct this relationship without fear, without what if, without maybe this, but to say we are going to have enough confidence in God that we are going to love one another without restraint, without any kind of holding back. We are going to love each other fully. And, and that does take some personal power. And it's my hope that a lot of people can do that. And I don't know that it necessarily means withdrawing from the church. A lot of, boy, a lot of people have withdrawn from the church because of polygamy, historical, and, and today and in the future. The, the polygamy as a, as a future prospect has driven so many people out of the church. You know, and as I was going through all of my stories, and I, in my very untechnological way, just with my notebooks and sticky notes and um, writing out the themes that were emerging, the theme that really, I believe, had the most marks underneath it for this is one of the themes in that was polygamy drove me right out of the church. So I'm, I'm hopeful that there will come a time when, when we can truly be in a post-polygamy era in the LDS church because the people deserve it. I want to point out something that I think is very interesting, which is even you and I faced it. We were on a panel about your book at Written Vision and someone stood up and they said that they were fine with polygamy because they had made sense and had trust in God that everything would work out in the afterlife. And that is a common, common sort of justification or maybe coping mechanism to be uncharitable or maybe just a reason that people have made sense with this doctrine. They say, it's all going to work out in the next life. And I've seen that phrase, don't worry about it, it's all going to work out in the next life, sort of weaponized against women and men who struggle with this concept. But you have reclaimed yeah. that idea and you have said, if it's all going to work out in the next life, then why are we worrying about it here and letting it cause us pain now? Let's fix it here and let God work it out in the next life. Right. I, I think that's really and powerful. Yes, yes. And I I know that there are women and men, but we're looking mostly at women right now, who who could honestly say, you know, this just this just doesn't bother me. It just doesn't. It somehow God's going to make it all work out. However, I think if you scratch beneath the surface of that, you might find some deeper emotions. And then if you extended the knowledge of that person's relatives and friends and said, did you know that, that your cousin weeps in the night because she anticipates such and such? Or did you know that your uncle weeps because he truly believes that the children of his own DNA 
are going to go with his wife that he will have been with for 30, 40 years now. The, 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 the wife and the children will all go with the, the deceased husband because he has first patriarchal claim through that ceiling. Any, any woman who understands the pain that is happening around her, I think would not say, well, it doesn't really bother me, so I'm not going to let it, I, I, I'm just going to leave it alone. We are taught, Lindsay, <laughs> we, a few, a couple of Sundays out of the year, we sing the poor wayfaring man of grief. I'm telling you, as I read through these stories, I saw the poor wayfaring man of grief on just about every story. Well, 85% of the stories exhibited pain. And, and to, to look at these, these wonderful women and men, I could not say, oh, that's not really my business. I'm looking at the poor wayfaring man of grief and their pain should be my pain. And I should know that whatever we do or do not do about the pain of these people, we are doing it or not doing it to the pain of our Lord Christ. Yeah, that's a beautiful way of, of framing it. And I think fits really nicely into Mormon theology, or at least the ideal that Mormon theology strives to get at, right? And when you, when you frame it that way, then the temple ceiling, the idea of family can be a way that is striving towards this, this Christ-like ideal rather than what I sort of saw as in the frontier, which is a way to establish you know, a dynasty in the in the frontier, a community that, a religious community that lived off communal ideas and developing doctrine and the politics of the day, and um, instead it sort of transformed those ideas into something that I that I personally believe fits better into Christian Mormon theology. So I love the reframing of that. Oh yes, 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 yes. So do you do you want to talk anything any more about the ceiling? Do you feel like there's something we haven't covered before we turn the next episode over to Gina? Well, just that <clears throat> there's so much confusion around it. You know, it's not really even a straightforward thing because nobody has a clear answer as to okay, so what happens to the children if this ceiling is broken? What happens over here if this? What about if this? Um, and because there are exceptions made today on, on all of these things, but the general thing is still established, um, there really is a, a lot of confusion. And so people are just asked to, well, you know, just... Have, have confidence that the leaders know what they're doing. Have confidence that God knows what he's doing. And, um, in, in, in the meantime, the, the confusion and then the, the outright clear pain are, are so deeply present. I agree. And, and that's why I think buying Carolyn's book is important because it really does sort of in, in, the same way that this podcast unlocks maybe a permission to be more flexible with your understanding of this topic, Carolyn's book also sort of unlocks or gives permission for you to maybe question or 
take back your power in some of these ways that um, you feel like this this policy and this doctrine has troubled you. And so I think that that's important. But I also want to point out that Carolyn and I have done something, which she mentions in her book. But if you go to yearofpolygamy.com, um, Carolyn has asked that we create a place where people like you listening or reading the book can submit your stories as sort of a landing page. Um, so you can tell your stories too, because we recognize the importance of telling your own story. Carolyn, do you want to talk about why it was important for you to continue to collect people's stories? Well, the written word is, is so valuable and, and story itself is so valuable. Uh, we really come to understand who we are because of our stories and the stories that have come down to us throughout history. And someone who, who knows that their story has been heard, there's something magical about that. And uh, so, yes, uh, all of the stories that I gathered here will be a permanent archive in and of themselves. And I was only able to choose what, about 105 um, and uh, kind of trim them down a bit within the body of the story itself. Um, out of that, over 2,500 stories that, that I have, and also throughout the, uh, the survey, there were comments made all, all along. So in, in effect, there's way more than 2,500 stories. But your story would be a welcome addition to a historical archive. And that's why Lindsay and I do have this page that you can uh, just write out your story there, certainly anonymously, or if you wish to uh, give your name. Um, and hopefully those that archive will, will develop so that it will be another testimony to the ongoing need for us to give significant attention to the pain of the idea of eternal polygamy. Yes, and you can go on this episode, and I will link to it, but also on yearofpolygamy.com, it's up there. There's a tab that says Submit Your Stories, and we'd encourage you to submit your stories. Right now, they are private. No one else can see them except for Carolyn and I, but um, there is a place where you can ask if you eventually want yours to be shared, and Carolyn and I are talking about ideas on how to best display those, and so you can watch for that. Carolyn, I just, again, I want to thank you for writing this book. And of course, this conversation is not going to be over. Gina Colvin is going to take the interview in, pl in a lot of interesting places that I don't think have been explored yet. So uh, that interview is going to be co-released with this and we'll link to that as well. But again, on behalf of LDS women and um, sort of our ancestors, I feel like this book is very, very important. Lindsay, this is an unusual kind of work for the dead. It is, isn't it? <laughs> I believe that. I do. I have just had personal conversations with my great-grandmother, Mary Oki, and I sense that she's pleased that her story has been told and that we're uh, taking steps, hopefully, to, to, come to, a, a fr to cross a frontier out of patriarchy into partnership, out of polygamy, so that we do not carry with us the pain and the stain of, of that difficult 
time any longer that, that has been in the past and that awaits us in the future if we believe that that's what God has in store for us. So, Lindsay, bless you for your good work. Thank you for a great conversation. And uh, I, I'm just grateful I get to to walk this journey with you and so many Oh, the people who've been contacting me, just stupendously fine people. I'm so grateful to be able to uh, do this journey with all of you. Yes, and and I too, and I feel like the same way about the listeners who have stuck it out this long and and made an honest inquiry into this into this interesting topic. So again, um, Carolyn is one of the people that I look up to the most in this world and who I look to as a light in my own life. And what's so great about her is she's so accessible to everybody. So if you haven't picked up this book or any of her other books or poetry, I mean, your life, your life is going to change when you do. So (laughs) Hey, I'll accept that. And let's just mention the title again, the ghost of eternal polygamy easily available at Amazon. Um, that sounds good. And, uh, be ready for part two on a thoughtful faith.